If you were listening to music back in the 1980s, there is no doubt that you're familiar with Boston's own Del Fuegos. The Del Fuegos burst onto the scene in the mid-80s with a string of hit records and went on to enjoy national success, including touring with such rock icons as Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, ZZ Top, In Excess, and even the legendary Bruce Springsteen. In studio today, we have as our guest a founding member of the Del Fuegos, Mr. Woody Giesman. Woody will share with us stories and experiences of life on the road and how he managed to transition from touring musician to opening one of the nation's premier drug and alcohol treatment centers located right here in our backyard. All that and more coming up next on Chapters. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Chapters. My name is Jim Derrick, and I'm here with my co-host, Sarah Mabardi. And today in studio, it is Mr. Woody Giesman. Woody Giesman, the founding member of the Del Fuegos and drummer extraordinaire. Woody, welcome. Hey, thanks, guys. It's good Thank to, you. Good to meet you. Thanks for being yeah. here. Uh, the Del Fuegos, for anybody that haven't listened to them, very, very cool band. Uh, they were hot in the 80s. Woody, how did you get started in the music business, and how did you find the Del Fuegos? Or how did they find you? Yeah, so, you know, interesting. I uh, ran into this uh, woman, Lily Dennison, who was their official, uh, uh, their official manager. She was actually uh, the waitress at the Rat Skeller in uh in kenmore square so it was a very formal process I exactly see. Yeah. So she, she walked up to my bar stool and she said you're that musician guy and i'm like yeah and she said so the the del fuegos are come i mean the, the band my band she kept calling them my band 
uh, uh, needs a drummer. And so that night, we were like out the door, and um, at midnight, we were playing a birthday party for, I don't know if it was Jim Sullivan, but some writer here okay. in Boston, uh, Globe Rider. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, the next thing I know, we're rehearsing and doing shows, and um, I think one month, a month of 30 31 days we did like 28 gigs we were wow. playing so much clubs these are all clubs clubs loft parties you know your backyard wherever and uh um there was this rumor that the record companies in los angeles were seriously looking at boston uh for the next signing f of a of a band and we happened to be uh the first in line so nice. i mean obviously boston had you know, the Jay Giles Band yeah. and Aerosmith and, yeah. and uh, a number of Boston, the Cars, mm -hmm. Boston. Yeah. Boston has a an amazing music scene. Yeah, it does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. Um, so, so you're here. You are playing clubs, and and this is such a cool story. I'm going to let you tell it because you go from playing the Rat Skeller, which I've been to, um, holds what. 300 maybe i don't remember maybe, but that, yeah i mean i'm sure they were they were i could tell you that how many they were, a, how many were they supposed thank you to yeah, hold yeah. versus so how many a few they hundred people pops. yeah <laughs> okay yeah. so a few hundred people it's a niche and, venue yeah you guys get a phone call uh, it had an odor about it yeah. that's what i remember <laughs> i don't know that i've ever been there but even i knew that yeah <laughs> so woody uh who takes the phone call from a particular band that says hey you guys want to do a gig uh, and it's a little different than what you've been doing well i mean it's interesting you know i mean let's back it up just a few months because we went to los angeles we signed with slash and warner brothers records and we uh were paired up with uh mitchell Froome, uh a, a, a amazing producer musician arranger um um and we were going to be actually his first band that he had produced huh. and he's since gone on to produce paul mccartney oh my goodness um you know elvis costello um peter gabriel los lobos and ev you know everyone so we we recorded this album it took us a few months uh pre-production and recording um, and then we uh, we got it in the can, and, and the album's called The Longest Day. Um, and uh, Rolling Stone magazine gave us three and a half out of four stars. Wow. Impressive. And right so out of the gate. we were like, that's cool, man. Someone actually likes us. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, which was cool. That, was, that alone was cool. We had no understanding of how far-reaching Rolling Stone uh, magazine was. Uh, but we scheduled a, re a record release party at the Rat Skeller in Kenmore Square. And <laughs> Where else would went you back, do it? Right, yeah. exactly, yeah. right. Where were, you, where were you born? Sure. Right there at Kenmore Square. Sure. So we came back and we had a Friday night uh, record release party. We were all excited and all of our friends and fans were going to be there, packed in this smelly space. Um oh. And uh, the phone rings, and Billy Gibbons uh, from ZZ Top called and said, hey, what are you guys doing? And we're like, wow, man, well, we're doing a record release party in Boston, um, you know. And he goes, well, why don't you come on down to, and play a little gig with us tomorrow night uh, at, at uh, Nassau Coliseum? <laughs> and so we're like, okay. Literally the next mm -hmm. night. 
literally, yeah. So we went from a Friday night um, at the Ratskeller. at the Ratskeller, uh, and drove to New York, and and uh, there we were at um, you know eighteen thousand seats, all, wow. um, which was uh, uh, kind of a scary event for me. We had, uh, you know, as a drummer um, and an artist. You know, I like to think about the space, and we had just played this little space, the Rat Skeller, and I had to kind of rethink my performance and see how these songs that we had just recorded were going to translate in this large space. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was an interesting challenge. Uh, we did it. We went on stage. We did it. I'm not going to say how well we did it, but we did it. And Billy said, hey, man, that was cool. Why don't you come to the Spectrum tomorrow night? We're going to do a couple of nights at this little place in Philadelphia. And we're like, okay, so now we're doing, you know, we're going to Philadelphia. So I'm up all night rethinking, um, you know, how do these songs translate? And Mm -hmm. I really felt like um, we did so much better and we learned, you know, lessons learned, mm-hmm. you know. You, you, you mean the second night you did so much better? Correct. Yeah. Okay, so that that's interesting because, Sarah, I would not be thinking about things like what he was thinking. And this is why he's who he is and <laughs> I'm who I am. Uh, I'm an air guitarist. Um, I'm not thinking about that. I'm thinking about where's my Pepto-Bismol? <laughs> um, how am I going to calm my nerves? And do they have Depends? on the stage because I just can't imagine that that optic of going from you know 300 sweaty smelly people to the Nassau Coliseum well we had Bud, Budweiser instead okay. of Pepto-Bismol there you go Very it good. was many and, years and I, ago Woody not to date you how old were you then oh jeez well to I, date you the heck with to it to date me yeah. yeah so I think I was the oldest member of the band yep. the youngest being Warren Zanes yep. um uh, who was 19, and uh, I was 22 or 23. That's right, a lot to age. take in. That's a lot to take in. And from there, uh, what was your introduction to Tom Petty? Because that's an interesting story. Well, yeah, so here we are back in Los Angeles. Uh, we had had some touring under our belt. I think we toured the United States. We toured Europe, came back to the United States, and it was time to go do our second album. Um, and so we we uh, relocated to Los Angeles, and we did. We were um, given three nights at the Roxy uh, on Sunset Strip wow. in Los Angeles. We didn't, you know, we could have played a bigger theater, but we thought let's play, you know, the Roxy multiple nights. That's cool. Mm-hmm. And so I don't remember which member. I think it was Tom Lloyd, our bassist, or maybe it was Warren Zanes, the guitar player kind of leaned into the microphone uh, and said, hey, does anyone know Tom Petty? And uh, it was probably Warren Zanes. It sounds like something he would do. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, th- that night we get, went back to from the Roxy down to our hotel room at the Hyatt or the Riot House on Sunset Strip. Um, and the phone rang about 3 o'clock in the morning, and it, and it was Tom saying, hey, man, you, know, <laughs> uh, you guys want to come on over and... Uh, so we're like, okay. Um, so, you know, it was, it was wonderful, uh, for someone whose music we loved anyway. Um, and in fact, Warren Zanes started his day with a Tom Petty song every day. No kidding. Yeah. Every day. Mm -hmm. 
um, the Damn the Torpedoes album would go yeah. on. Uh, and so um, it was just, it was wonderful to have this, um, you know, to have someone extend their hand and say hello and make us feel like someone liked us, first off. Um, uh, but also, he's such a Southern gentleman, you know. Interesting. So we went over to his house and we hung out. And the next thing I know, we're, he's like, has this idea of, hey, we should go on the road. And so we went out and we did, we toured the United States. Um, I don't remember if we did Europe as well. Uh, but I, th- I think it was a uh, hundred shows in these outdoor, you know, theaters like um, Great Woods at the time. I think we did two nights at Great Woods. Mm-hmm. Um, what and- is that called now? It was Great Woods. I keep forgetting. Uh, it was Tweeter, and now it's uh, it's something. It's Xfinity Center. I liked it yeah, as yeah. Great I Woods. Mean, I like the some places yeah. like Great Woods. But uh, so you're, you're you came home there. You must have had a heck of a following in Boston coming out to see and. Um, Open for Tom Petty. Yeah, well, I yeah, and that was great. But really, I think there was a relationship there, and yeah. there was this kind of camaraderie of artists coming together, and it was wonderful because every night, um, you know, we had an encore song that we picked, the the Clash, "Should I Stay or Should I Go?" Oh yeah, and so we would perform, and then Petty would perform, and then we would all come out, and the Georgia Satellites would oh come were on, there. and yeah. so you know. Every night, someone, you know, Stevie Nicks or, you know, someone would show up. Uh, Roger McGuinn, you know, who knows who the hell was going to show up. That's awesome. Uh, And we would do this encore together. Oh, man. We're going to keep going with this conversation. I just want to remind people we are uh, speaking with Woody Giesman. Woody is one of the founding members of the Del Fuegos. He's a drummer. Uh, And uh, we're talking, uh, uh, my co-host Sarah Mabardi and I are talking to Woody about the early days of the Del Fuegos. And now we're getting on to when they're they're performing with Tom Petty. And a a relationship is forming there that uh, lasts to this day. Uh, We're sad that we just lost Tom Petty. And um, Woody was sharing with us a painting that he's done uh, to uh, memorialize Tom, which is really something. I hope there's a, a place where we can find that painting sometime. It's it's really something. You can Google Woody Geisman paintings, okay, and uh, mm-hmm. see my website. All right, and it's WoodyGeisman.com. Do you have I'm a Do you have a website? Yeah, yeah I think it is. Um, I, on my podcast, uh, on our podcast, ChaptersRadio.com, I will put up a link to Woody's. You can uh, just find me on Facebook. And uh, yeah, there you go. There you go. So, Woody, um, I just mentioned a friendship, but but you you were alluding to that that a relationship was developing uh, with uh, Tom and, and the band in general. Yeah, I mean it was it was wonderful because you know working with such a an amazing songwriter and again a very much a southern kind of gentleman. Um, you know, we went in to do our third album, and and we said, Tom, you want to come on in and join us? So we actually had a wonderful uh, studio experience with Tom as well. Um, and I do want to add and maybe put a plug in for Warren Zanes, who wrote the Tom's biography, The Last Few Years of His Life. Uh, it was released last year. It was uh, on the bestseller list. A um, l- wonderful book called Petty. Um, and and uh, Warren spent you know, every waking moment of his life for the last few years having coffee, lunch, and dinner with Tom uh, uh, writing this uh, his 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 uh, biography, mm. and um, all of that stemmed from him doing a shout out on stage at the Roxy X number of years ago in a wishful hope that maybe Tom Petty would hear about it. 
Probably, but I also want to say Warren is an amazing writer as well. He's a very talented. In fact, he, I hate him. He's such a great writer. <laughs> he makes it seem so easy. Yeah. But, I, you know, there's a couple of moments in the book where I, uh, you know, there were experiences that I'm in, in, in the book, and, and I, I have to tell you, that's not the way I remember it. <laughs> <laughs> so he's taking a little bit of poetic license, but age allows us to do that. It's like I, fine wine. All I'm memories. saying is that's not the way I remember. I understand. I understand. <laughs> I understand. So uh, you go on to 100 dates with Tom. And, and did you keep up your relationship with Tom over the years? Uh, what are you personally? Well, not to the extent that Warren yeah. did. Um you know, I uh, we went on to tour with NXS. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went on to tour. Uh, we, you know, we performed with, uh, you know, James Brown, and <laughs> and uh, you know, one night we were doing a tour uh, uh, down. I think we were in South Carolina. We had a really nice sold out show, um, and we had been kind of. Uh, our tour had been crisscrossing the nation with with uh, Bruce Springsteen oh, and the E Street Band. Here we go. And then uh, you know the the promoter uh, or the club someone came into our dressing room and said, "Hey, there's a guy at the back door. He says he's Bruce Springsteen. He wants to come in." And we're like, "Will you let him in, please?" <laughs> and so he and Nils Lofgren walk through the door. And say, hey, man, you guys want to play some music together? We're like, absolutely, man. So we went out and we opened up our show and said, hey, you know, we want to invite a a, a friend of ours to join us. And he and Niels Lofgren both came out on stage. Do you remember what you played? I remember Bruce turning around to me and saying, hey, man, just watch my shoulder. And he kind of set the tempo for Stand By Me. Okay. Oh, no kidding. No kidding. Followed by Hang On Sloopy. Really? Well, we were kids, and he knew it. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I'm. He yeah. just pulled a few out of the hat that were easily accessible, and mm-hmm. and uh, the crowd went bananas. So no Badlands or Promised Land or that, that you recall. Yeah, it kind of goes into that uh, category of I don't remember much after he <laughs> hit the stage, but I know that we played and had a good time. I you know, remember watching his shoulder, which kind of translated to his hip down mm-hmm. to his foot, and I. Just locking in with Bruce. Sarah, you're blushing. Are Mm -hmm. you a big Springsteen fan? I am a big Springsteen fan. Yeah, I can see you blushing a little bit. Well, you you have to be humbled in the face of that musical talent. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. It goes a little bit beyond Stand By Me and Hey Sloopy. Yeah. (laughs) So, Woody, you've had these great musical experiences in in life. And um, the Del Fuegos, uh, you've done some shows uh, after you uh, kind of, you broke up at the end of the 80s. Is that right? The 90s? Early nineties, yeah. early nineties, and then you've you've come back together on a couple of occasions. Since yeah, then, we right? ha- we, yeah, we actually did a few years back. We did a like a thirteen city tour. Cool. Really? Yeah. How was that? <laughs> well, I have to say, uh, in the band's defense, we were better than ever. Is it, that right? The music was absolutely amazing. Okay. You know, so for two hours a night, it was amazing. <laughs> Right now, how far? Had but then you have twenty-two hours to deal with. So, how the, far had you spanned from when you stopped performing and traveling as much to that tour, that abbreviated tour? You mean with this band, in particular. Yeah. What was the time I've, space between? I've there? done many other projects between. You know, um, you know, it had been it had been better part of a decade. Well, you know, since and we to come had back together, together is phenomenal. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, yeah but they're all wonderful uh, musicians, and, and uh, everyone did their homework. We showed up and rehearsed for a couple of days, and it was off. Off we go. Mm-hmm. That's that's cool. That's really cool. Um, interestingly, um, Woody, do your children? I know you have a seventeen-year-old and a twenty-nine-year-old. Do they do they know uh, of your experience? Do are they appreciative of the music that you've put out? Well, yeah, um, especially my uh, my older son because he was kind of caught up in this this world, this uh, sure. hurricane. You know, um, you know, he was on the road with me at, from time to time. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife and son would come out and join me, and and uh, but uh, you know he, his name is Madison, and he's actually uh, um, you know named after his initials are MSG, um, <laughs> which is actually where I was performing when um, when he, he came along when he came along First in the world. Okay. Madison Square Garden. <laughs> Um, staying at the Madison Hotel. Got it. Um, Madison, Madison, Madison. So it was not hard to name him. Very interesting, Madison. If you're listening, I hope that's not the first time you heard that. No, <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Um, so Woody's story uh, gets even more interesting, uh, if that's even possible. Um, Woody, during that time uh, with the Del Fuegos, you publicly um, you share your story uh both in print and, and through interviews, uh, you developed a problem with um, with substance abuse. Well, yeah, true. I you know I did. I had my own. Uh, I had my own experiences with substance use, um, and um, and it kind of started back around the time that we were zigzagging around the nation with with uh, Bruce Springsteen, uh, and I started developing a little bit of a relationship with Max Weinberg. Oh, sure. Um, who would kind of look at me and say, are you okay? Uh-huh. Um, you know, and also Stan Lynch from the Petty Band right. would look at me and go, are you okay? Um, and I think, you know, by the end, uh, by, the, by uh, you know, 1990 or so, everyone in Los Angeles had looked at me and said, are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> and I was the last person to kind of get the, you know, get the memo that there was something going on here and, and I needed to step up and, and, and really take a hard look at, uh, you know, I was playing music, um, but not for the sake of playing music, but it was just kind of a, kind of a, um, a, kind of a pathetic existence, if, mm-hmm. if I were to be honest with you. Were you surrounded, and I don't want to throw anybody in particular under the bus or, or his names out there, but were you surrounded by that uh, that culture, and was it very easy to get immersed in in the 80s? Well, yeah, it was sad. I mean, you know, the record companies didn't, act, you know, they didn't discourage it. They wanted you out there selling records. You know, why don't you guys go to Europe? You'll sell more records, come back, go to the East Coast and tour to the West Coast. You'll sell more records. And, and you know, um, sometimes, you know, substance use uh, fueled me in, a, in an unhealthy way. Um, but sometimes it saved my life uh, and helped me get through the, the pain and the, the, you know, the awful experiences of trying to, you know, get through a tour. Um, so I'm I'm not going to dis- totally discredit that substance use uh, was always this terrible thing for me, but in the end, it's the one thing that that turned on me, and and uh, um, 
you know, is is a part of as a part of my story. It's the the one thing I had to say that was I thought was helping me, which which actually tearing me down. Yeah, does yeah. that make sense? It makes yes. it makes total sense. It makes. And total I'm sense. assuming in the industry, like you said, they wanted you out there touring, making money, becoming famous, and whatever you needed to do to make that happen for you in the studio. You know, yeah, and. You know, Anthony from the Chili Peppers, they were mm-hmm. l- label mates of ours. And um, and f- and I lived in their neighborhood, uh, Flea and Chad and Anthony. We all lived over in Hancock Park in L.A. And Flea said, um, you know, being on the road is like having the flu 20, 22 hours a day. Mm-hmm. And then you go on stage and you feel great for two hours. Oh, my gosh. Right? And then you walk off stage and it's right back to, you know to feeling um, aches and pains and tired and sick. And and so, you know, obviously I was medicating uh, all along the way. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for me, the one experience that stands out the most was when the band Blind Melon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we, we were on a tour bus. They were on a tour bus. So we're all zigzagging around the United States. And the difference was is... Their singer was dead on the back of the tour bus in a in a bunk, um, and they didn't know it, you know. Um, and on our tour bus, I kind of feel today uh, that I that was going to be me. I was going to be the next guy. Wow, you know, talk about a wake up call. Well, you had said um, earlier in this conversation, there's a pathetic existence that you weren't playing the music for the music, and here you are touring, spending 22 hours feeling miserable for that two hours of being on stage. And just to go into that a little bit more, um, when did that change, or when did you really realize? And keeping up the illusion of this rock star and this image and thousands of people screaming and celebrating you while inside, you're in pain. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, if I were completely honest with you, it was around 1987, I had a huge wake-up call. Um, and this this is kind of a pathetic experience for me, uh, but it's a reality. I like to call them opportunities for it, growth. Okay, it was an opportunity for me to look at getting honest with myself, that I was on stage performing, um, and I was killing it, by the way. You know, I, I was, we were so well rehearsed and the band sounded so great and uh, everything was really, you know, I'm, geez, I'm on the stage of Madison Square Garden. How bad is that? It's like the coolest stage in the, in the world. Sure. On the planet. Um, but all of a sudden, uh, in the middle of my performance, I thought about the drugs that I had in, in my uh, uh, dressing room. And I started to think, oh, my God, someone's back there, and they're going to find them. And so we have to hurry up and get off stage so I can get back there. And so I was completely robbed of the experience of performing uh, at Madison Square Garden, and I had to get honest with myself and uh, because I was preoccupied with uh, my addiction. The obsession of the mind. I, you know, I don't know who said that first, but... Uh, uh, there it is. Yeah, the I, obsession of the mind. Yeah. Um, boy, and, and, and so that's your defining moment, Woody. Um, I want to remind people, we're talking with uh, Mr. Woody Geisman. Uh, I'm a fa- mister now. Yeah, mister. We've gone <laughs> to mister. Um, 
and uh, he is a founding member of the Del Fuegos, a fantastic band back from the 80s, Boston-based band. Uh, my co-host Sarah Mabardi and I are talking with Woody about his life experience with the band and on and beyond the band and um, how that's informed him. So, Woody, you have this wake-up call where you have this obsession, this mental obsession. You're in the middle of a, of a set at Madison Square Garden, which really should have been the set of your life, the memory of your life, and your memory reel gets interrupted by this obsession with the drugs that are back in your dressing room, and you call that a wake-up moment. So what did you do next? You come off stage and... And I continued to use for several years, okay. if yeah. I'm completely yeah. honest yeah. with you. Um, and people who would come up to me and say, you know, I'm a little worried about you, um, um, uh, you know, I would just ignore them or say you're just jealous, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was a time uh, in uh, on May 4th of uh, <laughs> 1988 um, when... Uh, a very dear friend, uh, lovely musician, uh, came up to me and said the words, I'm worried about you. Uh, but he extended uh, an olive branch and said, I want you to come to my house in Santa Monica tomorrow. Um, and here's my number. Call me. So that was May 4th. So uh, I'm sorry, May 3rd. Of 1987. Of 19, yeah. And so 19, actually 1988. 1988. Sorry. And yep. so... Um, the next day, I thought, oh, geez, I'm going to Santa Monica. We're going to sit down and get, you know, write some music, and, and things are going to get hot and heavy. It's going to be cool. And uh, so I, you know, called them up and said, I'm on my way. And, and I showed up, and, uh, and uh, um, he said, let's, let's go to my kitchen where there was uh, uh, this uh, book on, on the table, uh, this blue book. Um, and yeah. his wife uh, was there waiting uh, as well, and so they uh, they had a little uh, uh, intervention in their kitchen that day. Uh, probably should have taken me to detox. Would have been this, you know, if it were sure. me, I would today. I would have taken that person to a detox. But instead of that, uh, we went out to a recovery meeting that night, and I had my first exposure to uh, um, to a. a you know, to the fellowship of AA. Um, and I thought all of these people are absolutely crazy. Why are they happy? First off, stop there. Why are these people so happy? What is wrong with them? You know, uh, so, um, uh, that was May, um, 1988. And so by April of 1990, April 12th, specifically, I looked in the mirror and said, you know what? It's time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got to uh, either be in or out. And uh, so uh, uh, I asked myself if I was uh, willing to go to any length here and uh, and did. And it's, I've been good since then. Fantastic. How's that? What a story. You know what really speaks to me that is that on you said on May 5th or May 4th when you were actually there and they should have taken you to a detox facility. Yeah. Um, I strongly believe everything happens as it should. Yeah. And here you are today telling us this phenomenal story, and there's so much more to share about where you've taken your life. And that everyone, I think it's so important to impress that everyone's on their journey, and there are different turning points that may not stick in the beginning that are impactful later. Mm-hmm. And you know, Jim and I, we talk about addiction fairly often, and understanding that journey for everyone and where it leads you. Mm. So I don't know if I said that particularly eloquently. I think you did. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But everything happens as it should. Mm-hmm. 
good, bad, otherwise. And yeah. we just have to be receptive to when it's going to strike us. Mm. And from what I understand, you've done amazing things with your journey. So I'm looking forward to learning more about where that took you. Well, but that was the beginning of my journey and, and exposure to the the writings of Bill W. and Dr. Bob and and even, um, you know, psychoanalyst Carl Jung. Um, uh, and, you know, at one point they said that, you know, some people um, benefit from 12-step recovery, uh, but some people require professional help. And so that was a real turning point for me. Um, I packed up my bags and left Los Angeles and went to uh, back to came back to Boston, and uh, not immediately, but I got back into school and wanted to become that professional, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Knowing that some you know some people and seeing some people uh, trying to get well, but uh, um, they would come into like the rooms of recovery and then they would drop out and disappear Mm. Mm -hmm. and I'm like oh geez I just talked to them yesterday what happened and now we're talking about going to their funeral next week yeah so how can I be of service here and uh, you know someone said to me uh, if you're going to keep what you have you have to learn how to give it away Um, and so I was at the very beginning of a learning process where I was going to dedicate myself to treating people who needed help Woody, I've come to understand over time that uh, substance use disorder, addiction, alcoholism uh, impacts not only the addict or alcoholic, but also has a tremendous impact on families and friends of of, uh, those that are impacted. Um, Is that fair to say? Well, sure. And I I think the the recovery process over the last 27 years has really helped me address that and be okay with this but uh, you know for me uh, as an artist um, you know I I have to also throw in not only did it affect my family uh, and my friends um, but it affected everyone who bought an album everyone who came to a a tick bought a ticket and came to a show and how did I let them you know how did my my addiction affect them and how did I let them down? Um, I was very sad that, you know, that addiction had um, somewhat hijacked my life and my creativity, um, that I I thought that I was a better artist, a better, um, uh, I had better ideas, (laughs) that I had more ideas, uh, that I was working harder, um, and that I was a better, uh, musician and a better uh, lover, whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, when the in the end, I I had to get honest with myself and and uh, and make an amends to myself first off. Wow, wow, that's powerful. That's really really powerful. You sent a, I mean, here you are feeling a real regret and and a real um, responsibility to your fans that you let them down. Um, and you know, I I remember looking back at album covers and trying to think about what some of these tortured artists must be thinking and it was like a badge of honor right mm-hmm. uh, steve tyler on the cover of get your wings you know wow here's a guy i went to see him at the uh the music hall right woody yeah back in the day before it was the wang center and i go out there to see him and and he played a 45 minute set and fell off the stage and my friends and i are 18 years old and we thought that was the greatest thing ever because yeah. we just witnessed the guy crash and burn right yeah mm-hmm. and we still thought he we still idolized him because he's still able to, to hold it together it's the illusion. But here's what he's saying. Yeah, you know, it's just not the way it works. Mm-hmm. 
creatively, creatively. <laughs> I let folks down. I let myself down, and it's time to move on. So in in '93, you 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 actually change your life and and go from musician in recovery to a professional uh, counselor. Yeah, I went back to school. Um, I was still doing some music. I was writing uh, for TV and film. I had a my own little studio here in in Boston, and I was writing, doing some soundtrack work. I I, I did a, uh, a project for the Boston Center for the Arts. I was the music director for a, a performance there. It was loads of fun, um, and I would uh, you know just focus on my recovery as a priority. Um, still play music because I could, um, and to uh, make a, a good living and and. Uh, but I went back to school and was, you know, attending classes at UMass. Um, in psychology? Um, well, human service management okay. uh, and addiction counseling. Yeah. So you were very targeted in what you were focusing on. It oh, was I don't about know. Addiction. I don't know what I was doing. I was trying to do something and, and I just... Your you intention know, I, was I, in the right place and this was going to take you where it was going to take you. How right. Well, I had learned this little thing about, you know doing the next right thing and mm-hmm. whatever that was just do it and stay out of the results so i did that <laughs> yeah no attachment to outcomes yeah just go yeah as long as it's the right thing and you know it's the right thing you know keep going teeth at a state run program no. called hope house which was basically a 6 month 12 step recovery halfway house yep. for substance use disorder mm-hmm. primarily alcohol and some opioids you sure know? Uh, that was early, early, early. Uh, that's 25 years ago. Then I went to uh, work at the hospital, where I uh, Cambridge City Hospital, where I was exposed to um, substance use and and a higher level of a continuum of services. Um, and then I was kind of pulled over to the Department of Mental Health, where I had the opportunity to look at mental health and how substance use. Um, was uh, uh, playing out itself a role in someone's mental health. Mm-hmm. So exactly what you said. First it was addiction and the comorbidity around addiction. Then it was mental health and the interactions of substance use in mental health. And, and so that was all the information I was kind of storing in my mind. Because addiction didn't talk to mental health at that time. And I wanted a program where if someone said, I, I think I'm an alcoholic, I said, well, we can talk about that. And they said, if I, th- if th- I think I'm depressed, I would say, let's get the doctor in mm-hmm. here and we'll talk about mm-hmm. it. I want to remind everybody, we are speaking with Woody Giesman. Woody is the founding member and uh, drummer from the Del Fuegos Band, and we are now talking about his story as he moves into the addiction treatment field, substance use disorder treatment field. So let's kind of fast forward a little bit, Woody. You you have a, a, a psychiatrist that, that you're working with. Um, so, you know, Dr. Ann Alonzo. So how, how did you meet, first of all? So how did she's you the head of the Advancement of Psychotherapy at Mass General Hospital. Mm-hmm. And she had heard about the work that I was doing because I was on a recording session. And the phone rang. And I turned to the band and said, we got to stop right now. I just need five minutes. Take five. And the singer in the band said, we're we're recording a song and i'm like i got someone who needs my help give me five minutes and they were they were furious but when they found out that this person was on the other end of the line and it only took a few minutes for me to say i will help you get into a detox you have to let me go record this song 
keep drinking and I'll be there. <laughs> uh, that person did go to uh, detox that, uh, that day. But uh, so Anne Alonzo heard about the work that I was doing that, um, uh, and Dr. Anne Alonzo is a psychologist, not a psychiatrist, but Apologies, um, yeah. but a uh, very scary lady. Um, and when she says, this is what you're going to do, you listen to her. Mm-hmm. You know, I was afraid to challenge her. I just, my only response was, yes, ma'am. So she wrote a check. Um, she said, you're going to turn on the, on the lights. You're going to open the doors. You're going to turn on the phone with no expectation. Let's just see what happens. And that's where right turn comes in. And that's where right turn comes in. Um, you speak so eloquently of addressing those who are affected with addiction. And in addition to your education and before right turn, I'm looking at your business card and there's a lot of letters after that. <laughs> and I'm pretty smart. I don't know what these letters are. Oh, okay. So I was wondering, can you speak to just really briefly all of these, everything that you've done to get to the point where you are now with Right Turn that yeah. she gave you that check? Yeah. Because you didn't just show up and she gave you a check. You invested in yourself yeah. to do everything you can from your experience. So what do these letters represent? So when I started off in the treatment field, um, there was this thing called a CAC, a certification for alcohol counselors and but we wanted it to go further so uh, we kind of pioneered the CADAC which is the uh, alcohol and and drug abuse counselor Mm -hmm. Um, with the goal of becoming licensed so years later we applied for an LADAC licensed addiction counselor and uh, because we wanted insurance companies to recognize this. Mm-hmm. Now, social workers said, "Well, you don't have enough, ther- you know, psychodynamic therapy experience to be to be licensed." So mm-hmm. we went back to the drawing board and we said, "We will add that." But by the way, you're a social worker; you do have a license, but you don't know enough about addiction gotcha. to be treating addiction. Mm-hmm. So let's really let's be honest. So we did get our license, uh, and uh, I went through the whole process of, of uh, you know, grandfathering this in and, and uh, help, you know, establishing this with the insurance company so insurance companies would recognize addiction treatment as a, as a helpful tool. Mm-hmm. And really, seriously, there's, it's a no-brainer. For every dollar you spend on treatment for substance use disorder, it's $7 saved. You know, and that's the thing, Woody. This is not a conservative or, or liberal agenda relative to providing more treatment for, for people with this illness. And, and I get this argument all the time from people in my role with the coalition, and, and it's just such a non-starter. Um, you can be a fiscal conservative and look at this issue and show a return on investment, uh, both from the from the savings in health costs, health care costs down the road, as well as the saving to businesses who are no longer being uh, robbed or, or having petty crime going on in their community for sick people that are trying to maintain their, their uh, disease. Um, and you can look at it from the other side of the coin, which is everybody deserves quality medical care for an illness that's a chronic illness, which without treatment will result in disability and or death. And that describes a lot of illnesses. So tell us a little bit about after she handed you that check. How is it different? There's other addiction treatments, uh, sober houses, programs. Tell us about Right Turn and how you incorporated your music background and your art background into this. 
Well, thank you. A really good question. So I had been taking notes all along the way uh, when I worked at Hope House. Um, there were some experiences that I valued, and there were some experiences that I feared that the client was not being served well. Um, uh, and then I went to work at the hospital, and the same kind of experience where there were valuable experiences that I was kind of taking in along the way, and there were things that I wanted to change, um, where I felt people were not being treated with dignity and respect, and their needs were not being met. Um, classic example, if someone comes to me and says, you know, I'm, I'm an alcoholic and I think I'm depressed, um, I, I've got to book an appointment for this guy to see a psychiatrist three months away, and he's probably not going to make it, you know. Um, so then I went to work for the Department of Mental Health where I, you know, I, uh, would, uh, sit down with a guitar and I'd play a guitar, we'd play a song and I'd put out cookies and I would bring a nurse in and we would have conversations and sing songs about medications and stuff and help people in an extremely resistant, uh, population of people who, um, would not remain adherent to their medication regimen and they would come off medications and, uh, so I was helping them try to stay on their medications um, and stop, you know, p putting down the medications that we know would help and going out and getting high to, you know, stop the voices in their heads. So my, uh, my sense was that uh, Right Turn needed to be a very comprehensive program um, uh, of psychiatry and psychotherapy and group therapy, but also uh, sh um, celebrating my experiences with, you know, at the hospital I did a drum group, you know, and I watched people with in early, early, early stages of acute withdrawal uh, actually experience pleasure for the mm -hmm. first time, and you would see them smile, and they would like oh my God, is my face broken? I just smiled and I'm like, no. <laughs> this is uncomfortable. Had, you right? just had fun, you know. And I remember psychiatry running down from the psychiatry floor to the addiction floor and saying, stop this noise. No and kidding. I was like, you know what? I've been thrown out of better places than this. Yeah, so. no kidding. <laughs> you know, um, so that's where the creativity piece kind of, you know, um, came into play. And then... Um, uh, as I uh, opened the doors of Right Turn and people started filing through the door, uh, trying to uh, gain a better understanding of w how I could meet their needs. Um, and I, re I call them the OGs, the original gangsters of Right Turn, and they're still around. Um, and, you know, they, uh, they said, let's start a group. You know, we still have the artist and recovery group every Thursday night at Right Turn 15 years later. Uh -huh. People still show up and they tell their story and they do a round-robin discussion, kind of like a 12-step recovery meeting, but it's not. And that's so meeting. huge that 15 years later, that's they're still here. They're still they're still coming that's to the meeting. That's a big statement yeah, in the, Yeah, it's pretty wild. Um, did I answer your question? So that's how it Indeed. kind of all came together. Yep, incorporating the arts into Right Turn. And people, I want to make sure I say this before I forget, that people can learn more about Right Turn at www.righthturn.org. Right. 
right. and learn more about the program. And uh, Right Turn is, um, uh, you know, it's both an IOP, which is intensive outpatient therapy. Um, uh, what he was educating me before the show, there's also something called partial, which is really an insurance type of logo, but that just means a more intensive IOP. With more five time. days a week as opposed to three, five yeah. as opposed to three, um, and they do have uh, a residential component with nine beds, male beds, correct? Correct. Yeah. yeah. If you go onto their website and you look at the quality of staff that Woody has around him, uh, and and um, and the types of people that that I've met a couple of them down in the Cape at a symposium. symposium of sorts, and and you know it's it's very very impressive. So the we there is no I in team. Woody was careful to, while he is the face of the organization. Uh, they are a tremendous group, and one of the things that. Well, first off, to say, you know, congratulations for picking up the phone. Yeah. That must have been really hard. And I know that. Mm-hmm. I know that, that it's hard to ask for help. And so good for you. So how can we help you? What, because we can help in so many ways because we have this very broad range of professional services all under the, the, this umbrella of right turn um, from individual therapy to extent, you know, to a very comprehensive uh, residential level of care. Um, so um, what do you want to do? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe it's maybe it's just showing up for a, a meeting on a Thursday night just to get comfortable in your own skin for a minute. Mm-hmm. Right. And to and not feel threatened. Just to be in that space. Just to be in that space. Right. And I, I have to say, and, and I hope anyone listening would show up at Right Turn. And come in and come to a Saturday night musical performance, which are, you know, from 8 to 10. It's a sober cafe. There's no alcohol. You can hear good music, um, comedy. Uh, we even have a karaoke night occasionally. Really? Well, I'm, that I'm seals it right you. there. I'm looking right at you and saying yes. Sarah? Yes. Sarah? Don't run wild. <laughs> me and you, karaoke night. There you go. But let me tell you, quite seriously, I've uh, the cafe is located at 4... Uh, 440. 440 Arsenal Street, Arsenal Street. in Watertown. Yep. Mm-hmm. The time of the performance, Woody? 8 p.m. 8 p.m. till around show 10? Up, show up at 7.30 to get a seat. Mm-hmm. Make sure you get a seat. How many seats do you have? It typically holds 50 people. 50 people. I, I performed there a couple of months ago, yeah. and, and like 80 people, 70, 70, 80 people showed up. So, Woody, how does the general public keep up to date and uh, get a schedule of when these performances are for the G- you know go to Facebook yep. and and like right turn okay and you'll get any updates on uh, who's yeah. performing um, I have thoroughly enjoyed this can't thank you enough for your time hey thank you for having me well folks I want to remind you uh, that uh, Woody Geisman is available on Facebook he's made himself available look him up uh, on Facebook get out to uh, and right turn and once again the uh, address for right turn is www.right-turn.net look them up on Facebook like them get out to one of the shows at 440 Arsenal Street in Watertown every Saturday night and um, please consider uh, consider right turn if you if you know of somebody that's struggling uh, Woody can we have the telephone number please yeah uh, simply call 781-646-3800 and uh, if you're interested in hearing more about our services just dial extension either 101 or 102, or if you need me, you can dial 103. Great. And all of this information will be at our podcast website, which is www.chapters.com. 
delfuegoradio.com. And so as we close out the program, let's take a listen to another one of the Del Fuego's big, big hits. This is I Still Want You. For our guest, Woody Giesman, and my co-host, Sarah Mabardi, my name is Jim Derrick saying thanks for listening to Chapters. Seasons change and lessons get learned. It's been a while, but my heart burns and says, I still want you. And that's all I'll do. Spend my time just thinking about you. Says, I still want you. Yeah.